The first speaker that we have coming up is Heidi McAnally Linz. She's going to be speaking us, to us about using evidence to inform policy, successes, challenges, and opportunities for EA. As we reach more audiences with the message of the need for evidence, and as more rigorous evidence is produced, it raises the question, how do we ensure that evidence is used and these investments are leveraged to impact the most lives? In this session, Heidi will share examples of how Innovations for Poverty Action is using rigorous evidence to inform policy conversations in national governments from Peru to Ghana and in sectors from education to social protection. She will also highlight opportunities for EAs in the next frontier of the evidence movement to leverage investments in rigorous evidence and achieve more impact. Heidi leads the policy and communications team for Innovations for Poverty Action, a research and policy nonprofit that discovers and promotes effective solutions to global poverty problems. Please welcome Heidi to the stage. Hi, everyone. Um, as, as I was introduced, my name is Heidi, um, and I work for an organization called Innovations for Poverty Action, and we want, run randomized evaluations in the field, um, and we've done about 650 of them in uh, f over 50 countries um, around the world over the last 15 years. So I, I'm just curious, before I get started, how many of you have heard of IPA before? Okay, how many of you have, like, read something about IPA, not just heard about us? Okay, okay. Great, so I'm gonna start the way I normally introduce IPA, um, and uh, I'm gonna ask you guys what might seem like a pretty silly question. So if you had a dollar and you wanted to buy oranges, you wanted some tasty, good-for-you oranges, which one would you buy? Okay, how many would buy the one? How many would buy the four? Oh, okay, good, it's not supposed to be a tricky question. Um, <laughs> It's supposed to be very straightforward because it is. Sometimes I get people to tell me, you know, what if they were of different quality, you know, same quality. Um, so now I'm going to ask something that might even seem even more simple to you guys in this room, but I always get varied answers to this question. So let's say you wanted to increase attendance at schools uh, in Kenya. Would you try to help kids. Let's say the, the reason why kids don't go to school is because they don't have the clothes, they don't have the right shoes, they, the, the uniforms are required, so they don't, they don't have uniforms, so they don't show up. Or would you give them deworming pills such that they don't have to you know, feel bad and they, they come to school? Which, which, how many of you would do free school uniforms? How many of you would do deworming? Yay! Okay, in this room, everybody gets the right answer, right? <laughs> and, but you'd be surprised around the world, um, whether it's in, uh, you know, the Ministry of Education in Ghana or in a room with non-EA philanthropists in San Francisco, um, the message still isn't quite out there. And um, however, in this room, it's it's pretty obvious. The additional years of schooling that you get for $100 for school-based deworming versus for uniforms is is quite significant. Um, and I won't go into more details on that. Um, but really, over the last I don't know, 15 years or so, we've really worked this movement together. All of us have really changed standards for evidence, right? Um, no longer is it acceptable for charities just to say that their outputs are, are impact. This is even becoming much more mainstream, right? All kinds of donors who are not just involved in the EA movement are now asking, asking charities, asking governments even to say, what is the impact of your program? Um, and increasingly people have answers to this. And so this is, this is, 
something that, <laughs> that you've all been involved in um, over the years. And a, lo a lot of the research behind um, some of these cost-effective fundable programs was carried out by IPA. So this is just to say, look, we've been a part of this together with all of you for a really long time. Um, and we've seen these things that are really pill-like have lots of success, particularly at scale, because they're really cost-effective, they're fundable. All the analytical brains can get behind it and say, yes, we're going to do this, right? So we've seen it scale. We're seeing Deworm the World. We're seeing the Against Malaria Foundation. We're seeing Give Directly. A lot of this thanks to, to Give Well and many others. And that's great. And <laughs> there's been a lot of impact of this. Um, and, and I'm in no way arguing that this should change. This is certainly a part of our legacy and something we're all really proud of. But what happens when the questions get a little bit more complicated? Let's say instead of attendance, you actually want to increase learning levels. Um, a study that we did in, 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 uh, in, in Ghana showed that just when we did the baseline, only 6% of kids in Ghana could read, in third grade, could read a really basic, uh, really basic sentence. Um, imagine being in school for three years and, and four or four years in some cases and your kids not learning anything. And so learning levels are a real problem. What would you do? Which one would you buy um, to to solve this this learning level problem? Would you would you spend money on merit based scholarship for girls, or would you? How many how many would do that? Oh, no one wants to do that. Everyone here is too smart. <laughs> or would you want to reassign students based on learning level? Good work. So. The, 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 it wasn't obvious to us when we did these original studies, and, and by we I'm using the IPA did the implementation of a number of these studies. Uh, we also work closely with JPAL, so you've, you've probably seen some of this from them as well. Um, but then when we think about how do we then put this into practice at scale, it becomes a lot more complicated because it's not just a matter of going a couple times a year into the schools and giving out deworming pills. If you really want to reassign students to classes based on learning level and teach to their level, you got to change the way classrooms are, struct are structured. You have to change the way teachers teach. Um, and you have to really do this, particularly if, you're, if you want to do this at scale in Africa, you have to do this at the government level. And that becomes a lot more complicated. So to take a step back, as I said, we, ha we have over 650 studies, all randomized trials, with few exceptions of things that complement randomized trials, in over 51 countries across sectors. But yet the number of these studies that all of you have heard of maybe is slightly larger than your average person, but most people in our movement have only, when I talk to folks even here at EA Global, um, some, some, somewhere around, I don't know, five studies beyond the, the ones I mentioned already, the, the deworming, the give directlies, et cetera, do peop, are people aware of? Is that because we didn't find positive results, or is it because applying those results is a little bit more complicated? And I, I argue that it's because applying those results is a little bit more complicated. Now, surely all 650 do not have positive results, and we've talked about um, a lot of the, the negative ones um, a, a lot, and I'm not going to get into that today. But there are a lot more positive results um, uh, than, than are being used. So what are we doing about all of this? Um, and how do we actually get these more complicated kinds of programs implemented um, at scale such that we're leveraging all of the money, all of the effort that has been put into all of these 650 studies to actually get the most cost-effective outcomes at scale, right? Not just things that are going to give, get us 
the, be the best um, the best pill-like intervention, but things that might change systems um, and leverage existing aid money, leverage existing donor money um, to, to make those those interventions more effective. So at IPA for the last last 15 years, this has kind of been our what we call our theory of change. Um, we see the prob really basic problem in the world is that there's limited evidence on what works best, um, and then there's limited use of that available evidence, and therefore you get ineffective programs and policies. Um, but and we've and our solution is twofold as well, right? We design and evaluate effective solutions, and then we mobilize and support decision makers to to use evidence and bibbity bobbity boo better programs and and policies. And the first part of our of our theory of change has is really scientific. We've got this down. We've been doing it for 15 years. Design and evaluate potential solutions to poverty problems. We know how to run a good randomized evaluation. We have not, over a thousand people in the field across 20 countries right now who do that. Who know how to do that really well. But we and I, my my hypothesis is that this is true in EA as well, and I'm I'm looking forward to hearing others speak on on how they're influencing policy as well. We don't really know how to do this mobilize and support decision makers to use evidence part yet. At IPA, we've only really been starting to focus on this. In spite of it being a part of our mission, a part of what we do, we've only really been putting actual staff time into this um, over the last maybe three or four years, um, and really it hasn't been even. You know the investment of of uh, in staff time in this is maybe maybe three percent of our staff are doing this right now, and so I think this is kind of the next frontier for the evidence movement. So even what little we have invested um, is paying off. We're working with governments uh, in all of these countries. We're investing more in the ones with with orange, um, and we're starting to create relationships and um, starting to help think about how to scale things of evidence that have, that already exists but also how to co-create evidence together with these policymakers, answer the questions that they actually have to create more effective solutions for them and in their context. So I'm going to tell you about three different uh, three different successes in that, and, and even, even in some cases I would still consider these along the way. Um, we're not we're not there yet. We still haven't figured out how to how to do this well, um, but I, I think I think there's opportunity for us in in the EA community to think more about how to actually use <laughs> use evidence at at real scale um, and create create real change. Um, so the the first example is in Zambia, where we where we did a really basic study um, uh, together with the Ministry of Health. Second is from Peru, where we created kind of a nudge unit, and then the third from from Ghana, where we've been working uh, for almost a decade with the Ministry of Education there. So the first example um, is. Uh, it came to us because we've been working in Zambia for quite a few years with Nava Ashraf, who's a researcher who we, who we work with. Um, and the Ministry of Health came to her because she'd been very helpful before and came to us because we've been very helpful before. And they said, look, we're, gonna, um, we're going to scale up our program for, for community health workers. We don't have enough doctors in this country. We don't have enough nurses in this country. we wanna, we got to recruit more community health workers. But we want to do this in the most effective way possible, but we basically have no budget. What do you think we should do? <laughs> okay. Well, this is a very common problem around, around the developing world. Um, you know, you, these are very undertrained uh, workers. And so we said, okay, well, what if we just varied the way you recruit them? 
because there's a very big debate. Should you recruit people who are more motivated to serve their community, or should you re recruit people who are more motivated to advance their career? This was like a debate that the ministry wanted to solve. So we said, well, this is something we can randomize. So all we did was randomize the flyer, right? So just very, very low cost in terms of what the, what the government had to do. And it turns out that um, just changing the, the, to the career flyer um, made the community health workers who recruited that way, um, those, those community health workers were 29% more effective at reaching households, um, and we're starting to see results coming out that seeing that's actually even better health outcomes for those households. And we expect that um, as they scale this, which they are using this tactic to scale to, to 5,000 uh, community health workers, we estimate that they'll, they'll capture an additional 315,000 households just with this, with this small tweak. What's really exciting about this story is not only are they using the results, but now they're saying, okay, now we've made this career promise. How do we deliver on this career promise? How do we create effective careers for these folks? And can you help us with evidence with that? Right? So this kind of one study is leading to what we're starting to call at IPA a culture of evidence-based decision-making. Um, and we think that's an exciting success. And I'll tell you more when I come back. I'm going to be in Zambia next month um, learning a little bit more about this. The next example, um, and we did this together with our partners at JPAL, um, is uh, together with the Ministry of Education in Peru. Um, so the Ministry of Education in Peru has a lot of, or at least had a lot of very sophisticated thinkers, and they wanted to think about what kinds of things could we do that are low cost um, to improve improve our system. Um, and so we spent some some effort in having an embedded staff member in the ministry. Uh, and they created this this lab um, together with researchers, ministry officials, and and folks from from IPA and JPAL. Uh, and their goal really was just to say, what can we do with the administrative data that we have um, to to test small things that that we could then use to improve learning outcomes um, or attendance or whatever the the outcome they wanted to improve was. And so we've we've done quite a few small small scale studies with them in the past few years, and the results now are just starting to come out. And there's a couple things that are really exciting uh, um, about this. The first is that it's institutionalized. So we created an institution, an, a nudge unit within the Ministry of Education in Peru, right? So when government changes are happening, uh, this is uh, this is already within. Of course, there's always a risk that you know these kinds of things get cut, but at least it's it's already kind of there and institutionalized. And another really exciting thing uh, thing that's happening from that is that. Um, people who work in the Ministry of Education have now moved, who worked with us on this have now moved to the Ministry of Health and also to Ministry of Social Protection and we're exploring doing, uh, doing labs with that, with those ministries as well. And then finally the, f the first results are out, um, and the study was essentially a, a, what we, what we call a field replication plus, right? A replication of a study in the field, um, that kind of tweaked a couple of things. And the original study was give, what happens when you give information uh, to students about what the, what the returns to education are. Do they, are they more likely to invest in education? Um, big impacts on, uh, from the Dominican Republic. And we're seeing similar, um, similar results in Peru. Um, and we tried a couple different technology tweaks there. And so the ministry is excited to, to start working on scaling that up. We still don't know exactly how that's going to play out, but um, it's in process. <laughs> And then the third example, sorry, I'm just realizing who's my timekeeper. You're my timekeeper? Cool. Okay. <laughs> um, the third example is, is in Ghana. 
And Ghana is the place where we've we've invested the most um, in in policy staff. Like I said, we haven't quite figured out what the right mix of research and policy staff is, and quite frankly, there hasn't been a lot of a lot of funding for the policy side because we've all been so excited about generating the research, which we've done a really great job of. Um, but we started um, by doing another field replication of a successful program um, run by an NGO in, in India, which apparently a lot of you know about, um, which targets teaching uh, at the level of a child and separates um, kids based on on, uh, on their levels. And we saw we did this at a very large scale with the government nationally representative, and we saw quite strong results. Even though, even though there was varied implementation, even though this was being implemented by the government. <laughs> it's very impressive. Um, and we were like, great, done deal, we're going to scale. And the government's like, well, it's more complicated than that. And we were using teaching assistants that were being paid for by the, by the youth employment program. Now that youth employment program is defunct. Okay, where are we going to get these teaching assistants? It's very complicated. And they're like, look, what we really want to do is what we told you at the beginning, is we want to do this model, but we want our teachers to do it. And you're like, okay, well, that's why one of the arms of the study was the teacher-led intervention. And so it wasn't as strong as when the, the teaching assistants did it, but it still had a positive impact and it still was cost-effective. Um, and so they said, well, look, what we want to do is we want to make this even more effective. We want our teachers to lead it and we want it to be more effective. What can we do? So there's even more questions. They are still planning to grow this at scale, but we're now testing how can we use people in the existing system, so district, district monitors, um, how can we use kind of the the head teachers um, to help improve implementation of, of this program such that the, the results are even stronger. So we're working together with them on this, but what that led to is all kinds of other questions. It led to, again, what we've been calling this culture of evidence-based decision-making. Um, and now, today, with the ministry, we have five ongoing studies with them, and all of them are influencing what they're doing in their curriculum, in their teacher training, even in their large, large policies um, on like what kinds of things to fund. Um, all five of these from, from pre-kindergarten all the way through secondary are they're they're calling us with questions and they're working with us on on answering them. Um, and really we're we're in this position where we can um, can help answer even help answer these questions and help improve the overall system. So how do we do this? Um, IPA and, and, and as a community, I think there's um, a couple important things that we need to remember about uh, the necessary conditions in which uh, evidence can be used. And these are kind of based on not only these examples that I've told you, but even when we think back about how how was it that we got uh, you know deworming to be taken up in such a, such a big level, um, you know, this this was also involved. So first, it has to exist, right? Um, it needs to be credible, which means we want it to be rigorous. We're doing really, like, these ones we're doing well on, right? We've, we've got the 650 randomized trials we're doing well. It's with everything else that we're struggling, right? So relevant. Sometimes these things take time. Sometimes the, the studies take time, and by the time we get to the end of them, the decision has already been made. So we need to be thinking together, or we, we, we share the results with the policymakers, and they go, um... I don't really care about that. Thanks for telling me, but this doesn't really help. Um, and so we've learned this co-creation of evidence from the beginning is really important. And this evidence has to be accessible, right? It's, it's right now a lot of these 650 studies. If we're not out there talking about them and writing and writing clear summaries of them, people don't get access to them. And they need access to them at the right time. There's policy windows. Sometimes 
those policy windows are right after a study, and sometimes they're 10 years, and people need, need the right information at the right time. Um, you have to get buy-in from the beginning, ideally, and this is something we've learned, <laughs> both the, the hard way, um, uh, by, by users and influencers, people who are going to use this, infor this information, and critically, the major donors, right? Um, it's one thing to get the ministry involved, but if USAID is their main donor and they're not on board, we're in trouble. Um, and there also has to be funding for this, right? So the fact that the youth employment program got got uh, got cut, well, that really messed up that 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 plan. Um, and users have to know how to apply it. And so I I like to think of this as the building a culture of evidence based decision making as the middle piece between evidence creation and evidence use at scale. And this is the piece that. We, all of us kind of, it's not, it's not so easy, it's more of an art than a science, and we don't like it as much. <laughs> but it is the critical piece that's going to help us get the ultimate outcomes that we want. Um, and so I, at IPA, we're doing this a lot by focusing, uh, focusing on the local, right? So we're doing all these things. We're sharing, we're sharing the solutions. We're providing technical assistance. We're doing advocacy. And, and critically, as you've seen, we're, we're, we're engaging very deeply, particularly with our government partners and helping them uh, be able to use and understand evidence. But we've learned that to do this, we have to be on the ground and we have to be there long term. And so that's why IPA in the past couple of years has made a decision not to work in all 50 countries, but we have uh, we have a presence in 20 countries and offices in 14, um, and and we're really focusing on how do we how do we help with this iterative uh, collaborative process and 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 help answer next phase questions um, such that the evidence actually gets gets used along the way. So to conclude, I. I don't want this to suggest that I don't think that everyone who is here for the GiveWell talk shouldn't continue giving their money to GiveWell. I still think that that is our, I'm, I'm our policy and communications person. I think that is the best kind of larger message for, uh, for EA to recruit more people, right? Get the best bang for your buck. <laughs> Invest in the most effective things. Here are the most effective charities. If you're given $100, this is where you want to give your money. But I think we, as a community, also have to think about create the creating of impact tomorrow. And we're doing this already by continuing to support really good research, thinking about what is the next dewarming. OpenPhil is doing a really great job of this. And you all are doing this, but I think we can all do this more, right? Help people understand how evidence can make their lives better, how, evidence, how creating evidence can actually be kind of like... A, ne a negative cost to them, right? So if they create evidence, it helps them cost save, then they, they, it, um, uh, their, their impact of whatever it is that they're doing can be, can be more cost effective. Where, wherever you are, right? And then finally, I think this is something we're not yet doing. There's a serious leverage that can happen if we, if we think about how to, how to use, how to, how to actually create policy influence from all of the research that we already have. Um, it could really, small investments could, could leverage millions of dollars that have already been spent on research to actually create uh, sustained action at the government level in, in the countries where we all care about uh, people's futures. So I'm happy to take questions. All right, let's thank Heidi. had a 
questions along a few different veins, but I'm going to start with some that talk a little bit more just about the, the structure of IPA. Um, you know, who exactly works with whom and how you establish your partnerships, that sort of thing. Um, I can try to narrow it since I'm sure this no, could go fine. on for a I, long time. I'm realizing I should have brought my, like, how IPA works slides because I could have done sure. that. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, so um, one of the questions uh, asks, like, what your relationship is to developed world, uh, like, funders. Uh, you mentioned a little bit that, you know, you get funded by USAID in some respects, um, but you're also working with developing countries, and yet you're a nonprofit. You're not, you know, technically part of the U.S. government. How, how does that work out? Yeah, so I, IPAs, so the question really is, well, how does IPA get funded, and how do we collaborate sure. with funders, yep. <laughs> right? So I'll d divide it into two parts, right? So the, 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 the answer to the first question, how does IPA get funded, um, we have funding from all of the large uh, organizations that fund research from the Gates Foundation to USAID to a number of large uh, individuals um, uh, and kind of World Bank, 3IE, et cetera. Um, how do we work with funders? Um, it's different in every country. And one of the things that we have not invested in is working on influencing funders at a global level. And, and I don't know if anybody from J-PAL is here, but I think they are, in terms of the family, uh, they have the comparative advantage to do that a little bit more than we do because they have a much larger global policy team. Our comparative advantage as an organization is really our presence on the ground because we're running all these trials on the ground and we have most of our staff on the ground. We have about 60 in the U.S., um, but a 1,000 people around the world. So really leveraging that uh, that that local presence. And so, for example, in, in Ghana, um, I was mentioning the Ghana example because we've been working closely with, uh, with USAID, with, um, with a couple of other funders there to some, to varying degrees of success. And what we found is that you're the more, um, the larger the funder, the harder in, right? So, um, uh, some, some of the funders that have been really supportive of us are, you know, the, your, homage our networks, your UBS, like people who are, who are kind of from the business world who are thinking about how to create leverage. Um, when you, when you start talking about larger, uh, larger aid, <laughs> aid, it, it gets much harder and more complicated and requires more sustained investment of time and, and resources. Definitely. And um, I'm, I'm particularly curious, and I think a couple people voiced similarly. Um, you have kind of a unique spread. You, you said you're not going out to literally every country, but you're still spread across quite a few countries. Mm -hmm. um, and that sort of uh, network development seems difficult. At least I can't imagine dropping into a random com country and getting you know close to the people who are making policies there. And that seems like both a sensitive thing and also just a really difficult place to put your foot in the door. How do you build those initial contacts? Yeah, so... Um, when I talk about the people who are doing this, I'm mostly talking about local staff. So um, uh, we have our education policy person in Ghana is like an Anne who was in the education system before. She's incredibly networked. She's personable. And she just got bought in to, this is what I mean by kind of building evidence-based culture in your spheres of influence. She just got bought in to why evidence matters. And actually applied for a different job with us. And we were like, no, 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 like, come over here, do this. Um, same kind of thing uh, in, in Zambia and in Peru. So uh, that's really what I mean, though, about building kind of the long-term presence. So we've, uh, we've only been able to do that because we've invested heavily in capacity building of our staff and, um, and recruiting people uh, from those countries and having a long-term presence locally. Right. That makes that sense. Makes sense. Um, 
Yeah, and uh, had a question or two also about how you uh, choose which projects to focus on. Uh, one person said that they really like the cost-effectiveness work you've done in education, but uh, they haven't found other attempts at cost-effectiveness calculations. They wondered, you know, how, how do you choose education out of, you know, any number of things you could yeah. be doing? So, uh, I mean, I think education, uh, I think a lot of the cost-effectiveness analysis, we can thank our friends at J-PAL for doing that. But one of the things that has happened is that um, because IPA is so decentralized, we've worked with over 400 researchers um, in all kinds of universities, and um, collecting cost data has strangely been an, an afterthought. Um, and so my team is like, wait a minute, what do you mean you don't have like accurate cost data? We've got impact data, we don't have cost data. So we are making a particularly um, concerted effort now to collect cost data because doing cost effectiveness analysis when you have cost data and you have an RCT is pretty simple, um, all things considered. But when you don't have good cost data, it, and which is difficult to collect, you don't have it. And we usually don't think about that till something's over. So we have collected more cost data in education, partially because of this, the excitement around cost effectiveness in education, um, and partially because of the researchers we've been working with were, were already thinking about that. And so um, it's one of the things that we're hoping to do with some of the strategic funding that we've been raising as an organization, is more cost effectiveness analysis in different sectors. Um, might you be able to shed light on what the, like those other procedures might be? Other sectors, you mean? Other sectors, maybe. Sorry. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. I mean, health is health is also an easy and obvious one. Um, I think we've been we've been doing some in social protection, particularly with the older core graduation studies, um, and we're doing a lot of replication plus of 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 that work. So there will definitely be cost effectiveness analysis there, um, but I can't. I don't, yeah. Right. And uh, uh, another thing in choosing projects, uh, do you factor in the difficulty of implementation when you're choosing what to do rather than just what it seems like, you know, this seems like it would be a good intervention were it, it to work? That makes it sound like IPA has agency in, in deciding a lot of things what we do. I mean, so the way I, here, okay. So IPA is in the middle. We've got three things here. Here you've got my phone is the donors, here are the researchers, and here are the implementing partners. And our job is to bring all of them together to do a study. Now, sometimes the donor pushes us to do something, and we go out and we get the researcher and the implementing partner. Sometimes the PI, is the researcher, is very interested in a particular question, and so he says, we want to do this, you know, are there any partners? And so we find the partners, and typically the researcher also can pretty easily find the money. And so the, a, a lot of it is driven by donors. But increasingly, and this is what we want to be doing more of, the policymaker comes to us and says, this is a question we have, um, and we then help find the funding and, in a lot of cases, do the research ourselves or, or bring our, our network along. So, so some individuals sometimes, <laughs> and <laughs> depending on who you're talking about. Yes, and, and in terms of what IPA invests in strategically, um, a lot of it has, has been in education, but I think that has to do with, some, with our leadership and and, and what we think the best opportunities have been historically, not because of any particular other strategy reason. Got it. Cool. And, um, yeah, oh, man, there were a couple of other things along here. Uh, yeah, uh, I did actually have a question that was kind of along these lines. If, um, if you personally or the people that you work with pretty closely um, – are, are like trying to make something happen. Are you now like trying to create new policy partners? Like if, if you're, uh, you're saying we, we should do a new project. Um, 
So what, what's the first action that yeah, you would so what, decide to take? What I am personally working on, so for the last year, I, for IPA, had to play an interim development director role, which was a lot of work. So now that I'm not doing that anymore, my personal work um, is has been building our policy team on the ground. So we've only in the last year recruited um, people in uh, Kenya and in Zambia to do this work in Burkina Faso, and we're hoping to recruit, and in, in the Philippines, we're hoping to recruit more, um, uh, particularly to pursue this strategy, um, and we're working to identify where are the opportunities where we can have the most impact. Um, and those are in those countries. There's particular projects around which I think we can go for a similar Ghana model. Um, so we're we're focusing on that um, and and raising money to do more of that. That's kind of my personal work. <laughs> Um, might you be able to talk a little bit more about what it's like on the ground um, insofar as you've been involved or you know like other people who've done on the ground work? Um, it, it feels easier to talk in abstract, you know, have these policy partners in, in Peru or Ghana or somewhere else, but what, what's the like messy actual situation like? Um, hmm. Just trying to think of like what's the right story. Um. So uh, I'm better at marketing stories, so sorry that this is not as exciting as... uh, Come see me in office hours, and I'll tell you some more nitty-gritty ones, um, because they're not coming to the top of my head right now. Um, But I was actually... I had not spent time in our Ghana office. Other folks had had led that. Um, And I was just there in March, and I, I showed up to what I already knew was this really deep relationship. And I had, I really just had no idea. Had no idea that um, we were co-hosting this conference together with the ministry and they really felt like it was their conference about evidence um, until I was really there. Um, And so we we asked... um, we asked the director of the Ghana Education Service, which is kind of the implementing arm uh, of the ministry, um, I said, so how did you think our conference went? You know, what did you think? She goes, well... Like, you tell me, like, it was our conference, you know. And so I just didn't really understand the depth with which that was um, that was happening. And I guess, well, here, there's a USAID uh, story along with that. Um, they also were incredibly skeptical that that Ghana was even remotely ready for something as advanced as teaching at the right level. I mean, that they even said to me, like, look, they need to get their, like, teacher attendance right. And I was like, well... <laughs> I'm pretty sure, and I had to go look at the study to be sure, I was like, I'm pretty sure that teaching at the right level, even the teacher-led version, increased teacher attendance. I looked, and sure enough, I was right. And so I went back to him, I said, look, I understand you want to improve teacher attendance. Quite frankly, that's what we're trying to do with this, with improving implementation. What that means is improving teachers doing what they were doing, which in a lot of cases means improving them showing up. And we saw that even when poorly implemented, this was doing that. And that was one of the reasons we had outcomes. And so like, let's work together and think about this. And I, I don't know if he completely came around, but um, I know that since then we have had a lot more interaction with him and with his team, and they're, they're sounding a lot more excited about what we're doing. Is that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's neat. I, I get a little bit more of a sense of the dynamic that you might have with yeah. people. And I mean, on the flip side, you know, my, my team on the ground spends a lot of time uh, sitting on the me- bench outside the ministry <laughs> waiting for somebody to you know, uh, help them get a meeting, right? So in the places where we don't have this relationship already, getting in the door has been incredibly challenging. And so once we've been in the door, like in Ghana, they, um, it's much easier. But there's a lot of time spent waiting for the assistant of the person who's going to, can you help? Yeah. So not all glamorous. <laughs>
Um, yeah, so I, I imagine we have a couple of cynics in the audience, but I'm, I'm sure. just projecting on you guys who oh, would say, sure. well, you know, there's, there's no reason they, these governments should care in the first place, right? Especially if it's not uh, a particularly uh, democratic government, mm -hmm. why should they even care about the like, efficacy of these programs? Mm -hmm. Do you find some sort of like golden ticket in the midst of like a, a corrupt government? Like how, mm -hmm. how do you find your way in? Are we just too cynical? Mm -hmm. I mean, so there's lots of ways in. I mean, donors is one way, and that's definitely been a way a way in for us. Um, and but I, I think you you do find your gems, you find your champions, and those champions tend to grow and move around. And that's the long term nature of it as well. That's why we 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 do think this is not a you know a three year project, and it's going to change everything. Um, so I, your skepticism is well founded. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a difficult thing. I think we don't know how to do it well, and I think it'll fail in a lot of places. But I think where it, where it doesn't, uh, it'll it'll be high impact. So and sorry, the last thing I'll say is we did we did one study that found that um, uh, health 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 workers. Um, were not actually uh, did not actually want to take bribes, um, which we were very surprised by, um, and I think that just speaks to we're not necessarily when we're talking about influencing policy, we're not necessarily talking at the very high level. We've had a couple cases in which we've engaged at an incredibly high level with the president and the, the minister himself and all of that, but really what we're talking about is changing the way things operate, um, and those the people at those levels typically are bureaucrats that want their jobs to be doing something um, more often than not. That's, that's nice to hear that, the, you know, that there's some hope. Um, skepticism is good. Um, I'm going to finish with a last question, which is uh, presumably you have some people in the audience who would be interested in actually helping out this work, not just observing from the sidelines. If you could just drag and drop them into their, like, the positions you really like to see filled, what would they be doing? Should they be researchers? Should they try to like move to one of your on-the-ground offices somewhere? Maybe they should just yeah, donate Yeah, so money. I mean, at IPA, we, we've never struggled with the kind of um, getting really good entry-level researchers, RAs, who are going to then go on to do PhDs. And so that, um, certainly, if that's something you want to do, we're a great place to come for that. Um, we haven't struggled with that. Where we've really struggled is getting... Um, is getting folks at the management level, people with a couple years of experience on the ground. Um, and... I've been pretty successful growing growing the, the policy and communications team, but people don't really think of us um, for that. And I saw a slide that was presented here earlier as kind of one of the lacking skills was both in kind of management and operations and also in, uh, in policy outreach and in marketing, and I think that's true. And so if you have any inkling in those kinds of skills, um, I'd love to talk to you. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Do you have office hours? Uh, yeah, at 5 o'clock. All right, she has office hours at 5 o'clock if you want to speak more. Thanks so much for your time. <laughs>